0: Well, good morning, Trace. How are we doing this morning? How's everybody doing? Happy November. Everybody glad to be here? Glad to be at church. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Hey, you should really give yourself uh, like a round of applause. You survived two winter storms and Halloween all in the same week. So give it up for yourself and that you're here. I don't know if you're anything like my wife and I. Uh, We saw this picture online this week, and we could absolutely identify with this. I don't know how much candy you had, but you're at a 10, and I'm going to need you at a three. I'm going to need you at a three. That's how we were with our four kids and hey, really quick, I wanted to say uh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, met several new families uh, and just people in general this uh, morning. And so I want to say thanks for being here, thanks for coming. We know coming to a new church for the first time uh, isn't always easy. And so I do want to let you know, however, that if you were looking for a perfect church, you found the you found the wrong one uh, because we're by no means a perfect church. Let me give you one example. This past week, I sent out an email. And the title of the email said, bid weekend, bid weekend at Trace. I need to let you know that we're going to have a new financial campaign and we're going to be bidding on things, starting with a date with Josiah. Can I get $50? Can I get $50? How much? What do we got? Oh, here we go. Here we go. No. That was supposed to say big weekend uh, at Trace. And obviously we missed that. And that was my bad. So we're not a perfect church. If you're looking for a perfect church, you found the wrong one. Well, today we're continuing in this series called The Gospel. And if you guys would allow me, I'd love to give you some background information on how we landed in doing this series, why we're doing this series, because it wasn't our plan. It wasn't our plan to do a series called The Gospel. In its place, we actually were looking to do a series called Meaningless, and we were going to be going through the book of Ecclesiastes. But one of the things that happened to me and what kind of started to circulate within me that caused us to change our course was a trip that I had a couple months ago. A couple months ago, I was afforded the opportunity to go to Istanbul, Turkey, And there's a church plant there uh, that is a part of the same church planting network that we're a part of called Orchard. And so they asked me if I wanted to jump in and go over there to support a local church planter. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So I jumped in. And just a side note really quick, 5% of all the money that you guys will ever give to Trace will actually go to church plants. We're very intentional in supporting church plants. I'm going to talk more about that a little bit later on as well. Uh, But 5% of everything that you give will go to church planters uh, like Bill Gate, who's the lead pastor right here. The lead pastor of the Istanbul Project, and guys, when I went there, like I knew that this was going to be an impactful trip. Just knowing the church history that is in that particular region of the world, uh, I knew it was going to be very impactful. There's places like the Hagia Sophia, which was the first constructed building by Constantine in the fourth century. That was was likely the first ever building built for the sake of corporate worship. Uh, Burned down a couple times and they rebuilt it, but nonetheless. Uh, It stands on the same ground that the original was built on. And so again, I knew that this was going to impact me, but what I didn't know was that it was going to wreck me. While I was in Istanbul, I started to learn some statistics, some things that were happening particularly in that area of the world, and specifically with the city of Istanbul, and I learned that there are 16 million people. 16 million people there, that's twice the size of New York City. But out of that 16 million, there are only 4,000 known believers which equals a percentage of people that I don't even know how to pronounce. And as I'm learning this, and as I'm walking up and down the streets of Istanbul, streets that looked a lot like this, people shoulder to shoulder to shoulder as far as as the eye could see. And I kept just thinking about only only 4,000 known believers. It's likely that I will walk up and down these streets and encounter thousands of people and not one of them will know Jesus. And God wrecked me, wrecked me for the gospel, knowing that I had this good news, this information that could drastically change the trajectory of these people's lives. And it wrecked me. And then I started to think about you. And I started to ask myself a question. Aaron, as the pastor of Trace Church, have you done an adequate enough job of communicating the gospel and teaching people, the people who call Trace home, how to share the gospel? And I began to chew on that. And I spent a lot of time on that. And so I came back and I talked to our teams and they'll, they'll tell you this, I was almost in tears over this. And I'm like, guys, we gotta change something. I wanna, I wanna do something, I wanna change and I wanna do a series called The Gospel where we put, put a tool in people's hands that no matter where they're at at any point in time that they will be comfortable in sharing the good news of Jesus with people. And then I talked to our Trace Kids team and said, listen, I don't know what this will look like, I'll let you guys figure it out, but I want every fifth grader that graduates from Trace Kids to know how to communicate the gospel because you know this, like we, we've studied it, right? I mean, we, we know that we should study it, and since we've started Trace Church, we've studied the gospel, we've studied God's word, and when we talked about what it looks like to show it, because it's not enough to study it, we want you to show it. You've heard me say that we want to get to know God by reading his word so that we can show God, we get to know God so that we can show the love of God, that we want to be on mission to leave a trace of God's love everywhere we go. But church, if we don't share it, if we don't share it, Then the gospel is nothing more than the best kept secret known to mankind. And can you think, can you imagine the irony in that? That we have the path to salvation. Why in the world would we ever want to keep it a secret? Because one of the things that I know the gospel was never meant to be, ever, was a secret. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter. 10, he said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. And so an obvious follow-up question to this would be why? Like, what, why is it? What is it that's stopping us from sharing the good news? Like, what's keeping us from leveraging every ounce of influence that we have in our lives to let people know that there is a God who loved them and loves them so much that he sent his only son to be sacrificed on their behalf? Why in the world would we ever, ever hold that information within and keep it a secret? Now, there are probably several reasons. If we had time, we could probably unpack several reasons of why that's the case of what keeps us from actually sharing the gospel. But last week we determined that one of them was this right right here. We will never share the good news until we fully understand the bad news. And so Josiah took us through the story of creation last week and he introduced you guys to this illustration. Now, our hope is that you would use this illustration and become comfortable with this illustration, so everyone should have one of these in your hands and also a pen in the seat back pocket in front of you. And so on the top of that illustration, I want you to write really quick the gap and the gospel. And so Josiah... Oh, running out of room. Josiah introduced this to us last week, and he talked about how in the beginning... There was God. And God created us. And when he created us, we were actually with God. Like he created us to be with him. That's what he wanted. He actually walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He wanted an intimate relationship with them. And when God created them, he created them in his image. And what did we know about God? We knew that he was perfect. We knew that he was truth. That he was grace that he was just and he was love. And it's kind of hard for us to fathom, but when he created us, like these things actually represented us. But then we know the story, right, that Adam and Eve chose, a, chose to go against the will of God and God could have asked them to not do several different things, but he just asked them to do not to do one thing and that was to eat from the tree of good and evil, or the tree of knowledge, and they chose to go against the will of God. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? They went against the will of God, and instead of being with God, once they decided to go against the will of God, they were then separated from Him. And instead of being perfect, they were imperfect. And they were dishonest. And they felt entitled. And they were corrupt. And they were fearful. And Josiah did a great job. Didn't he do a great job last week teaching us about this separation and how we need to feel this separation between us and God. We need to know that sin causes this separation. And a lot of things that I hear people accuse God of, like, well, why is there so much starvation? And why are there so much pain and evil? And why are people dying of cancer? And why and why and why? All of those things entered into the world and filled this gap because that was never God's original design. And so when you hear people make excuses of why they don't believe in God, you need to point them back to that's the way that God didn't want those things. And the only reason those things have actually entered into the world is because we chose to go against the will of God. And Josiah helped us to feel this separation between us and God. And and listen, church, we need to feel this separation because this is a lot more than just an illustration. This gap represents our need for transformation. And it leaves us with a question mark of what do we do now about salvation? And God, being a loving God, said, you know what, I'm going to do something about this because this is not how I wanted it. When I created you, I wanted you to be in relationship with me. I wanted us to have a relationship where we talked and we even walked together in the garden. And so God wanted this intimate relationship with us. And so being a loving God, he said, okay, I've got a plan to fix this. I've got a plan to fix this. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm I'm gonna give you a measurement. And this measurement is going to help you to know what I expect of you So that you know what you'll need to do. You're going to know now what you're going to need to do in order to have a relationship with me once again. We know this measurement as the law or the Ten Commandments. And God says, I just need you to do one thing. Like It's just a small thing. If you want to have a connection with me once again, if you want to bridge that gap, what I need you to do is live a perfect life. Oh, that's it, God? And we know this law, and we know this measurement system as the Ten Commandments. Let me remind you of what those commandments were. And again, God says, if you want to have a relationship with me again, you've got to live these things out perfectly. So you shouldn't have any gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. You should honor your father and mother. On that one alone, how many feel like your kids are going to go to hell? Right there, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, keep, keep with me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't say anything that's not true, and you shall not covet. And so God gives us these commandments. He gives us this law, and he says, hey, if you'll live those out perfectly, you can actually have a relationship with me once again. We can bridge this gap. And I want you to see what God says to Moses after he Uh, gives him these ten rules, these ten commandments. In Exodus chapter 34, God says this, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger, and I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. Don't miss this last, last statement. But I do not excuse... The guilty. So, who's the guilty? Hold that thought. One of the things that I do when I'm talking with people about Jesus and what God has done for them is I use something that's in the ministry world called the morality ladder. And so, I'll use a measurement system like this, and at the top, I'll put perfect, and at the bottom, you know, we could talk about like Satan is the worst person, so he'll be at the bottom on this morality ladder. And what I'll ask people, it's like, hey, tell me somebody that you think has lived a really, really good life. Like, who's somebody that you would say is like just an incredibly good natured person? And Mother Teresa often comes up. So let's put Mother Teresa somewhere up here. And then I'll say, now tell me somebody else. Like, somebody else you think that has lived a really good life. And it's not uncommon to hear uh, the name Billy Graham. Now, depending on if you're Catholic, or you grew up Catholic, or you grew up Baptist, depends on where you're gonna put Billy Graham. Does Billy Graham go above Mother Teresa, or does he go below? Now, I grew up Baptist. So, I'm going to put him above. All right. Yeah, I'm just messing around. This doesn't really mean anything. And then let's, like, let's think of somebody else. And so, I would say, how about my wife? All right. My wife, if you know Emily, she's a beautiful person. You would be shocked at how faithful she is. She gets up at five o'clock in the morning, oftentimes, she reads the word of God. She wants to be obedient to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I love my wife. And so, I put, like, and I know her too. So, she wouldn't put herself above Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. So, we'd put my wife down here somewhere. <laughs> Where would you put me? The correct answer is anywhere below Emily. And so we'll put me somewhere down here, AP. And then, you know, we'll go through this. And it's like, well, you know, who's somebody that you think is really, really bad? And so Hitler will come up. And so we'll put, you know, Hitler down here. And then we could think of something like, who else is really bad? Let's let's think. Let's like, like, Patriot fans. Patriot fans. I need to adjust the scale a little bit here. And so I'm just kidding. We're not going to have any Patriot fans left in our church by the time I'm done. But I'll go over this with people, and it's not uncommon for somebody to look at this as I'm describing it, and they'll say something like this, well, like, how good is good enough? Like, Aaron, how do I know if, like, I'm okay with God? Have I done enough good things? Like, how good is good enough? Because, like, good people go to heaven, right? Right? And then they'll talk to me about somebody that they know that is like a really good person, a really good person. And they'll describe them and how, man, they spend their whole life in service to other people. And they help widows and orphans and poor people. And they're just incredible. And maybe you know someone like this. And it's like, man, I know some people that are far more like Jesus than like a lot of Christians are. And because this person may not even believe in God, but they're a really good person. And so who is that? Maybe you know who that person is. Maybe you know somebody like that. And so let's just call them the really good person. And so Let's put them up here. I think it's worth for us to put them up there. Somebody like, man, we can't think of anybody that's better than that person. They're incredible. And so we put them on here. And so, man, maybe they're really, really, really good. And so we'd still, we put them way up here. Here's the good person. That person we know, Maybe they don't even know who God is. Maybe they don't believe in God. But, man, they're incredible. They devoted their life to helping other people. <laughs> Over the years of talking with people about this illustration, it's shocking at times, to see their look on their face when they learn that goodness, listen to me, goodness is not even a part of the conversation of what gets you into heaven. That's hard for us to hear sometimes because we want to feel like that we've done enough good things. There's something inside of us that wants to have an accomplishment when it comes to our faith. And so, of course, goodness has to be a factor, right? I mean, of course, goodness is going to be something that God would consider for others to come into heaven. And smart, educated, accomplished men and women everywhere are banking their eternities on the theory, on this theory that ultimately holds no truth. Because no matter where you fall on this ladder, no matter where you fall, even the good person that's right up there, maybe just below being perfect, no matter where you fall on this ladder, no one meets God's requirement. No one does. Because the only way to get back to here and to be with him once again, the way he created it to be, is to live a perfect life. In other words, God gave us a measurement. And based on that measurement and the fact that we know that we've made mistakes, we're never going to measure up. So I'm going to pray and we're going to go home. No, I'm not going to be. But I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I give to the church even. Even at times, I'll even buy some Girl Scout cookies. That has to account for something, right? And Paul likely dealt with similar arguments in the early church, which is why he was crystal clear on this subject. In Romans chapter 3, he says this, For all have sinned and fall short. Everybody say fall short. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if no one can attain this, Like if no one can measure up, then why did God give us this measurement? Why did God give us this law that is impossible for us to meet the requirements of? Paul also speaks into that with clarity in Romans chapter 5. He says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. In Romans chapter 7, he says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let me get off on a side note really quick. I need to confess something to you today. That This past weekend up at the men's getaway, how many guys were up at the men's getaway? Yeah, incredible time. Uh, God showed up and showed off. If you didn't get a chance to go this time, make sure you come with us next time. About 80 guys up there. It was an incredible weekend, but During this weekend, I found myself like in complete coveting mode. I mean, full-on comparison trap because I was standing by the man, the myth, the legend, Spencer Burdan, the person who gives us all beard envy. And I was with him. And yes, as you see now, I came back. I was true to my word. If you're new to Trace, I had a beard, as you can see. Uh, Until this past week, I told my wife after the men's getaway that uh, I was going to trim it down. And now I stand before you feeling incredibly emasculated. And so I prayed about it, and um, I feel like God said to grow it back out. And so my wife needs to know that. I prayed about it, I prayed about it, and all God's people said, no, no, don't, don't, don't. <clears throat> don't get involved in our, she's actually fine with it either way, I'm just having a good time. Now some of us may look at this and think, how unfair is this? Like why would God set such an impossible standard? But can I get you to think of it differently this morning? Because instead of us thinking like, God, why would you set such an impossible standard? I mean, that doesn't sound very loving, but think about it differently. Because how unjust would God be to have a measurement, to have an expectation of what it's going to take for us to get back with him, but to never communicate that to us? Like, how unjust would that be? To leave us like wondering aimlessly throughout our life, wondering, "Have have I done enough? Like, am I good enough? God, have I done enough? Am I? Are we okay? You see, the law shows us our need for redemption, our need for a savior. The law shows us that we can never get to get back to God on our own; that it's going to take something or someone else. But this is where the good news begins, because the law was never the solution. Listen to me: the law was the setup. Let me show you how the author of Hebrews says this. He says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never... Everybody say never. For this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who are drawing near to worship. You see, the law was an imperfect system, and it led the Israelites, the people who God originally gave the law to, It led them to this kind of checks and balances approach to God, approach of their faith. In other words, when they were obedient and they did what God told them to do, God would bless them. But when they were disobedient and they didn't do what God told them to do, when they didn't measure up, God would punish them. Now, we no longer live underneath this system. We live underneath the covenant of grace, and thank God for that. But some of us still fall trapped to this kind of approach of our faith, what I would call a performance Theology. And maybe because we grew up in faith communities that taught something like this. Hey, if you're good, like make sure you're good, make sure you behave, because when you behave, like God's gonna be happy with you. But don't misbehave. This this behavioral management approach to faith, don't misbehave, because if you misbehave, God's like a tyrant up in the sky with lightning bolts ready to throw one down at you. And so we kind of start to Operating this checks and balances system, not knowing how God really feels about it, about us, but can I remind you of something that Josiah said last week? And we've said this before. <clears throat> excuse me, said this before. There's nothing that you can do. Listen to me. Somebody needs to hear this. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. And when we approach our faith with this kind of checks and balances, God, have I done enough good? Are you okay with it? Are you mad at me? Are you upset with me? And it's not that we shouldn't live in faithfulness to God. Of course we should live in faithfulness and obedience to God based on what He's done for us. But when we approach our faith that way, it gives us a view of our Heavenly Father that is completely inaccurate. Now, I want to do something for you really quick. And it's going to, it's going to take me a little bit of time. But what I want to do is I want to explain another system that was happening within this time frame when God implemented the law. And he gave the law to Moses and some time thereafter because he did set up what I would call a temporary forgiveness system. And in this temporary forgiveness system, what would happen is the Israelites would sacrifice certain animals, and when they sacrifice certain animals, they would be forgiven for a certain amount of time. And if you grew up in the church, it's likely at some point in your faith journey, you've asked the question like, God, what was up with all the animal sacrifices? Like, what's up with, why why did there have to be so much blood shed? And if I'm being honest, God, like, if I can go a step further, like, why did it have to be like sheep and goats and calves? Like, why couldn't you have made it cats? I mean, that would have been a lot. Sorry, because I had to go there. There's going to be no patriot fans or cat fans uh, at our church. I want to show you what the author of Hebrews, because this is actually incredibly important. Incredibly important. I want to show you what the author of Hebrews says about these blood sacrifices, and then I'm going to add some points of clarification, and I really do believe that you're going to appreciate this. So Stay with me. In Hebrews chapter 9, here's what the author says. That is why even the first covenant, this would be considered the old covenant, the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, "The blood, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle, and I'm going to talk to you about that here in just a moment, and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, don't miss this, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So why a blood sacrifice? Let me attempt to shed some light on this. You see, blood is the essence of human life. So in a way, it's a reflection of creation when God breathed life into Adam and blood started pumping through his veins for the very first time, the essence of life. And so if you think about it, the shedding of blood and the sacrifice of life is the greatest level of atonement one could make to God for not living up to his measurement. Let me paint this picture for you to bring even more clarification. During this time... This system, this temporary forgiveness system that the Israelites operated underneath was something called the Day of Atonement. And during the Day of Atonement, what happened is God gave them some instructions. He said, hey, I want you to build this thing called the tabernacle. Gave them very specific instructions on how to build this. And he said, one time of year, one time each year, I want you to bring to the tabernacle two sheep. And they would bring two sheep. And what would happen is they would sacrifice one of the sheep and they would take its blood, and they would cover the other sheep with its blood. And then the high priest, who would be like the holiest dude of its time, of their time, would take some of this blood from the sacrifice sheep and take it back to this place called the Holy of Holies in the back of the temple area. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Stay with me. What was in the Ark of the Covenant was the measurement. And the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And so the Israelites, knowing that they weren't living up to this measurement, would take some of this blood, the essence of life, and they would go back to the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, and he would sprinkle blood around the Ark of the Covenant, letting God know, we know that we're not living up to this measurement. We know that we're not there. And so God, we ask for your forgiveness for one more year. And he would sprinkle this blood around the room. Then they would take the goat, or the sheep, that was covered in blood, the one they didn't sacrifice, and they would lead it away with a rope. This is actually where we get the word, a scapegoat, if you're curious. And so they would lead this goat or sheep away, and some have suggested they would take it out to the desert, and they would just let it go, and it would die in the desert, or they would take it to the edge of a cliff and literally throw it off. And then they would bring this blood-soaked rope back to the tabernacle. Go back to the tabernacle. They would bring this blood-soaked rope back to the tabernacle, and they would hang it over the front of the temple area, And some have suggested that with time and over the course of that year, this blood-soaked rope would turn white as a sign of God forgiving their sins for one more year. My iPad is ringing. But friends, this was a temporary forgiveness system. It was just a setup for God's actual plan for restoring us back to himself for good. But this law served its purpose, and it had its place, because based on this law, based on God's measurement, and based on our mistakes, we learned that we could never measure up. So the law let us know that the only way to bridge this gap, the only way to bridge this gap would be to live a perfect life, which we now know is impossible. It doesn't matter how good we are. And sometimes this is so hard for people to get over. It doesn't matter how good we are because goodness will never fill this gap. It doesn't matter how spiritual we are because spirituality won't fill this gap. Coming to church won't fill this gap. Praying won't fill this gap. Sacrificing animals cannot fill this gap. The only thing that can fill this gap is living a perfect life. And if someone could do that, listen to me. If someone could actually do that, and then sacrifice his life? Well, that would be a perfect blood sacrifice, wouldn't it? And that kind of sacrifice would allow our sins to be forgiven forever. But without that, we're still left hopeless. Last week, when Josiah taught us about the fall and how we brought sin into this world, he left us with the fact that we're still living in hopelessness because. Sin brought death. Today we talked about the law and this measurement, how we can't live up to it, which means the law actually also leaves us in a hopelessness in death. But there is a type of death that will ultimately bring us life. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. Let me pray for us. Father, If we're all honest, sometimes what happens is we bring with us to church or we bring with us to the approach of our faith, our subjectivity, our opinions, and our experiences. And not that all of those things are completely bad, but what happens is we begin to form and shape our own theology that's not rooted in the truth of your word. And we begin to put together what the New Covenant calls false gospels. And so, Lord, I pray that throughout this series, we are reminded that there is only one way to you. It's not through being good, because we can never be good enough. It's through your son, Jesus, because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And the only way that we're going to get to you is going to be through him. And so, God, I bet there's some people in this room that have never fully accepted that. I bet there are some people in this room that maybe have allowed their subjectivity to form too much of their theology. And so, God, I pray that this series is a time for us to be refined by your word and by your truth and about the good news of the gospel. And so, Father, would you just take this information and allow this seed to be planted in our hearts and to burden us with this information so that we will not keep it a secret. I pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said Amen.